Remain standing as we tackle Romans 7, verses 7 through 25. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of my God, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. The word of the Lord. Let's continue our prayer. Father, we know um, that you are all-knowing, that you know our motivations. We ask, dear God, that you would uh, be with Pastor Bryant and help him to um, expose your word into our hearts so that it may not just be a revelation today, but throughout this week and year in our life. Thank you for um, gathering us together to hear this, your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, loved ones. I promise not to start with an old house illustration today. How's that? 
I want to start with this one instead. Several years ago, back when I was a younger man, I joined Colorado's 14ers club, which means I climbed a 14,000 plus square foot mountain. Uh, square foot. <laughs> No, 14,000-foot elevation, how's that? All the way to the top. But this is what I did. A friend, a friend of mine and I got in his Jeep, and we drove to the end of the trailhead, and then we donned our packs, and we started our ascent up on the mountain. And I didn't get uh, even a, a quarter of the way up before I was already cussing myself that I had packed two forks instead of just one fork, or did I really need that pillow as heavy as that thing was on that pack behind me? I found my legs turning into rubber, and I was huffing, and I was puffing, and my head was down. I wasn't looking at anything around me, and finally we paused for a break, and I found a rock where I could lift that pack's weight up off of my back, and I found a little bit of refreshment. I started to drink a little bit of water. I found even more refreshment. And then I looked up and I thought, oh my goodness, look where I am. The beauty of the, of the mountain scenery around me. And then it came time to get, get up and get going again. So back up uh, we went and started up the trail. My head went down. I'm huffing and puffing, looking at every step that I'm taking along the way, feeling the weight of my pack until we got to a place where we stopped and got the weight off of our back. And I caught my breath, had a little water to refresh myself. And I looked up and I thought, oh my goodness, this is even more beautiful than it was before. And that was soon over until, again, we did the same thing over and over and over again until I finally crested that summit, and there I was standing on the top, 14,149 feet, and I could see out all around me the beautiful landscape, the beautiful creation that God was revealing Himself and what He had done, and it just took my breath away. I want you to think about that particular illustration because I think that's exactly what Paul does for us here as we've been working our way through this Equipped by the Spirit series of Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8. Pastor Andrew started back at the beginning. I want us to think about, put it, kind of put it all into perspective before we get to our text for study this morning. I think Paul does the same thing that I experienced headed up Mount Humboldt that particular day in the Santa Cristo Mountains in Colorado. And that is, he's, he's writing these great difficulty things that are just, he's expending so much energy, it's costing him everything within him. And then he pauses and he finds refreshment and he gives us a summary of that refreshment. Let me show you what I'm talking about. In chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul is giving us this picture of our own sinfulness, just how sinful we are. There are none righteous, no, not one. He points that out to us until he gets to chapter 3, verse 23. He pauses, he lifts the weight up off of his back, he refreshes his spirit, his soul, and he gives us a summary statement of our, of our justification. That fancy word that simply means that God has pardoned all of our sins. One declaration, a legal, a legal declaration that our sins have been truly forgiven. So he pauses and he gives us this refreshment in 323. But all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace 
as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, simply means He took our wrath away from us to be received by faith. This was shown God's righteousness because in us divine forbearance had passed over our former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Him. So Paul rests, justification, the doctrine of knowing that our sins have been declared forgiven. But then he gets up again and he starts writing. He finishes chapter 3. He moves into chapter 4 with Abraham justified by faith. And chapter 5, the peace that is ours through faith. And then he gets into this understanding of the first Adam. And all, the first Adam and all have, uh, have died. And the second Adam, those who trust in him are made alive again. And then he gets to chapter 6, you've been dead to sin and alive to all that is good. It's like he's huffing and puffing. He's making his way up the mountain until he pauses. He gets the weight off his back, and now he finds refreshment, not in justification, that declaration that our sins are forgiven, but now in sanctification, this ongoing work of grace in our hearts and our minds. Look at verse 17 of chapter 6, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves to righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, now present your members to slaves of righteousness that lead to your sanctification, verse 22, but now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit that uh, gets, <clears throat> the fruit you get leads to sanctification, to its end, all the way to eternal life. He gets back up again, so to speak. He makes his way, continuing up that hill. He's huffing, he's puffing until he finds refreshment after he's talked about being released from the law in chapter 7. The law and sin working together in chapter, uh, the end of chapter 7. The life of the Spirit now, the Spirit that comes to us, that that boils up within us like streams of living water, and then he comes to that place where he finds refreshment again, not for justification, not for sanctification, but now he has his eyes set on the end, on glorification. Chapter 8, verse 18, for I consider the sufferings of this present world are nothing worth comparing to the glory that has been revealed in us, and our spirits moan and groan even today as we await the day of glory, the day of, of, of uh, reconciliation with God Himself. I think that's a beautiful picture of what the Apostle Paul is doing, bringing everything into perspective for us here, that we are saved by grace and justified. We now live by grace as we are being sanctified because we have the promise of knowing that glory is coming by grace and He will carry us all the way to the very end. Life is filled with those times when our legs feel like they're rubber underneath us, that we are, we're exhausted, we've lost all of our breath, we're making our way to the summit. And so He gives us this beautiful picture of what all He has done for us by His grace, by His grace, by His grace as we journey in this life equipped by the work of the Spirit that is within us. You need to know that this is a very controversial passage actually among evangelicals. 
there are lots of different tangents of, of basically two views. Uh, there are about seven different ones, but basically they come down to two particular views. And that is those that see that this passage, chapter 7, verse 7 through 25, is uh, a pre-conversion before Christ becomes a follower of Jesus. And then there are those on the other side that see this as post-conversion, uh, after Paul becomes a follower of Jesus. For those on this side, they say Paul could never say in Romans chapter 6 that he was dead to sin and alive to all that is good, and then go on one chapter later and talk about the attack that is within him, the things that he wants to do that he doesn't do, and the things that he doesn't want to do that he keeps on doing, and how this is coming alive within him, boiling, and the sin is just taking over his life. That can't be, they say. So what they say is, chapter 6 says that we have been dead to sin, alive to all that is good, and then Paul just gives us a picture of, uh, in chapter 7, what it is that we're passing through as we come to saving faith in Christ. We're passing through chapter 7, and we're getting to chapter 8, because in chapter 8 then, as we'll hear next week from Pastor Andrew, we're filled with the Holy Spirit. There's now, therefore, no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. So we're simply passing through chapter 7 and getting to chapter 8. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that would be all well and good, except for we never get out of chapter 7. That we get into chapter 7, and this is the life, even in the, in the context of our sanctification, until we wait for that day of glory, until we get to the top of the mountain. We never get through chapter 7 into chapter 8, where we put chapter 7 behind us. So the second view on this side, and the view that the camp in which I find myself, is that Paul is giving us a picture, this picture here. In chapter 6, he is saying, <clears throat> you are dead to sin and alive to all that is good in Christ. You're dead to sin's dominion, but you're not yet dead to sin's presence. It has no dominion or reign over you, but it still is present among you. And then in chapter 7, you are dead to the law. And yet, by the law's standards, we still are not perfect in this life. And then we get to chapter 8. We are now filled with the Holy Spirit. Like Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well, it's boiling up within us like streams of living water. But we are moaning and groaning in this life until we get to the day of redemption. So I think before us, friends, here, I, I, I think the, the, the better question to ask instead of who is the man that Paul is referring to, is it a man pre-conversion or post-conversion, I think the better question for us to ask today is what is the purpose of the law, what, what, law, what, what power does the law have in the life of a believer today that's living here in sanctification? We've been justified, our sins are forgiven by grace. We are now living by grace, saved by grace, living by grace in this act and work of sanctification until we get to that hope that's coming, the day of glory when Christ makes all things new when He comes again. What is the purpose, the use, the power of the law today? for the life of the believer? I think that's the better question that we ask. I think if we were all honest with ourselves, if we were asking ourselves that question, we would say we most likely in many ways neglect the law. 
We neglect the law in our own life because we think to ourselves, it's hopeless when I open it up and I read it and I see all of the, all the things that the law requires of me. I, I can't keep this, so why even start? Why even begin down that, down that path? Because I know I can't keep it, I know I'm going to fail it, and so we neglect it because it's hopeless. We see it as uh, an unreasonable thing, an oppressive thing. Everybody else is out there and they're getting to do what they want to do. They're getting to have the fun that they want to have. But now I'm under this set of law, uh, under these laws that keep me from doing the things that I think would bring joy to my life. So we neglect it because it's oppressive in our hearts or in our minds. Or like we said a couple of weeks ago when we looked at chapter 6, The promise that God gives to us is where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. And our sin can never out-trump God's grace. And so we say to ourselves, well, I don't need the law then. I'm going to go out there and sin my fill so I can get more grace. Because as I keep sinning, God keeps giving more and more grace, so I really want more grace. And how do I get that? Well, it's by keeping on sinning. And so we neglect the law that way. Or we elevate ourselves I know this doesn't describe you, but it does me. I look at the law and I say, well, I hadn't killed anybody this week. I've been married 37 years. I've never committed adultery on my wife. This law is really for those those people that are really, really bad. Not for people like me uh, that that keep a lot of the law. Maybe not all of it, but I, I elevate myself in such a way that I'm not near as bad as some of the other people in the world who really need to need the law, or we get angry over it sometimes, don't we? Doggone it, God is a, he's a party pooper. I, 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 I want to do this, that, and the other, and the law keeps me from doing that, and so I get angry over the fact that he's just, he's not out for my best interest. He's not out for my good. He's out for me to have this terrible life that I'm enduring even now all the way until the day of glory. If any of those, friends, describes you, which is our our condition, our sinfulness, and the way we look at the law and neglect the law, get angry over it, don't even try, whatever it is that might define you, friends, there is great news for you in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 25. Even in the midst of the controversy, I think Paul is very, very clear. In chapter 7, verse 7 through 12, look at it in your scriptures there, he uses past tense only. He gives us a picture of the past tense until chapter 7, verse 13, he uses the present tense. In the past tense, he's talking about the purpose of the law, what the law was given for. And then he takes this personal application now, how is that law empowered? What power does that law have in me? And notice in verse 13 and on, now he moves to the present tense, and not only the present tense, but the first person pronoun, singular pronoun, I, I, I. He gives us this beautiful picture of himself so that now by those of us who are followers of Jesus that have that indwelling of the Spirit, we can do the same thing for our own lives here. Look at chapter 6, verse 14. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at this. Sin will no longer have dominion over you because you are no longer under the law, but you're under grace. In verse 4 of chapter 7, Likewise, my brothers, you have died to the law through the body of Christ. Pastor Andrew talked about last week. In verse 6, you are now released from the law. Think about this, friends. To whom is Paul writing? Paul is a Jew. 
any Jew now that had been converted by the way, are they to, are they to hear Paul say, you're no longer under the law. It has no, you've been released from the law. The law is nothing to you anymore. These are Israelites. They're not Moabites. They're not Ammonites. They're not parasites. They are the Israelites. And the Israelites were identified by the law right? That was the visible part of the sign and seal of the covenant of grace with Moses, that the law that, that Moses carried down off the mountain, that God's chosen people, the Israelites, would live under that law. They would seek to keep that law, knowing that they would fail it over and over. It identified them in the rest of the world. So they're hearing Paul or reading Paul, and now they're saying, are you telling me that the law is sin? That the law is sin, it's no good at all? And look at our passage. What shall we say then? Verse 7. That the law is sin? By no means. May get anoito. It's that, that word that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. No, no, a thousand times no. I couldn't write it any more emphatic in the negative form. Is the law sin? Absolutely not. God forbid. No, no, a thousand times no. Because look what he says. If it hadn't been for the law, I wouldn't have even known what sin was. So the law comes along, here's how we use it then. The law comes along and reveals to us what it is saying. It defines for us what sin is. Paul goes on to say, I wouldn't have known what it means to covet if I hadn't had the law that showed me, revealed to me, that coveting was a sin. But why covet? Of all the sins that he could have chosen, covet? Really? Well, it takes us all the way back to the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? Adam and Eve were created in the likeness and image of God. And yet they said, I want to be like God. They already were like God, created in his likeness and image. They didn't want to be like God. They wanted to be God. And that's what coveting does that I want to be something that I'm not right now. I want that over there instead of this right here. And Paul is saying, the law then revealed that, defined what sin was, defined what the, the, the sin of covetousness was. But look what he goes on to say then in the very next verse. And now it came alive. Sin seized an opportunity, he says two times before he gets to verse 13. Two times sin seized an opportunity. It came alive within me. Now that I saw that sin, sin took over and all I wanted to do was sin more and more and more. It came alive within me, and look what it says. It's what led to his ultimate end, to death. Commandment produced all kinds of covetousness in me. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. But once I was apart, from the, once I was apart but now the commandment came, and sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me because sin saw its opportunity. Now we're back to the garden again where God said, Adam, Eve, my precious ones, in whom I've entered into a covenant, creating you in my likeness and image. Look around. Everything here is for your enjoyment, except for that right there. Don't touch that right there. And what did they do? Squirrel! Right there! Surely he didn't say that I couldn't do that. This became their focus. 
that once it was revealed, it was defined, it became the very thing that they wanted and they set after. And I know that describes you, it describes me. It becomes the very things that come alive within our hearts. Augustine put it like this, the law is given not to take away sin or to deliver us from sin, but to reveal what sin is before grace comes. The result is that those who are placed under the law are seized by an even greater desire to sin and sin even more. That's who we are at our very core, friends. We are no longer under the dominion of sin, but we are under the presence of sin. I have died to sin. You are dead to sin and alive to all that is good, but sin is not dead in you. We are dead to its reign, to its dominion, but the presence of sin is still there. And when we see sin, when we understand it, we want it even more. That's exactly what Paul is doing, verses 7 through 13, giving us that picture of what it is, the purpose of the law, to define for us what sin is. But then he moves to the first person singular pronoun to give me the power of that sin. And he goes on to say that, okay, is the, is the law then what, what drives us to death? If it's not sin, but you said I move on in sin and it drives me to death, is the law then death? Look at verse 13. Did that which is good bring death to me? And there it is. Genoito. By no means. No. No. A thousand times no. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that, may, that, listen here, that sin might be shown to be what it is. Sin might be shown to be sin. It's sin that leads us to death. And so now sin is exposed in, in our life, revealed by the definition of what we understand, but the law is not sin. The law is not death. Sin leads us to death, and now it exposes that within us. It exposes the pollution of our hearts. It's like it shines a great big light right into our heart and shows us what it is that we keep going after, what it is that we love more and more and more. I'm a, I'm a baby boomer. Uh, my generation and the generation before my dad, Christmas morning, every Christmas I would come out as a little bitty kid and he had that eight millimeter video camera that had no sound, but it had a tree across the top of it with four thousand watt spotlight bulbs. Anybody remember that? I know some of you do. And here he's holding this like that. And every one of them, we're all, you know, like this because of this huge four, 4,000 watt bulbs shining right on us. So Christmas morning was like, eh. but that's exactly what the law does. It's shining a light right into the darkness of your polluted heart to bring you to the place to see that you're exposed. You're exposed in the sin that you love more than your Savior. We've got to be careful here because some would say, is Paul contradicting himself? I mean, back in chapter 6, verse 14, he said, sin no longer has dominion over you. But now in chapter 7, verse 14, he's saying that we're sold under sin. And in chapter 7, verse 18, he says, nothing good remains in me. Or in chapter 23, the very close to the very end, he talks about 
that, that, that sin, uh, he serves the law of sin. Is Paul contradicting himself? No, friends, he's not. I want to show you why we understand that he's not. Look at verse 14. The law is not sin. The law is not death. What does Paul say in verse 14? We know that the law is spiritual. But I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Next week, Pastor Andrew is going to show us this passage in chapter 8, verse 9. But you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. So Paul is giving us a distinction of what it means to be of the flesh and in the flesh. This is exactly why he can go on to say, nothing good is in me, that is in my flesh. He really would stress it like this, I think, nothing is good in me, in my flesh. But what is good in me, as we're going to see next week, is now the the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So there is a contradiction, actually, but it's not based upon Paul's words. The contradiction is in the way we live our life in connection to the law, that the law reveals, defines for us what sin is, exposes us, shines that big bright light into our heart that we love that darkness more than the light, and we run to it, because it comes alive within us, and if we do nothing about that, then the contradiction becomes in who I say that I am as a follower of Jesus and the way I am living as a follower of Jesus. We're in the context of here. We've been declared righteous by grace alone. We have now been sanctified and are being sanctified by grace alone until that hope of glory when Christ comes again in the fullness of that glory and we are completely glorified, reconciled to our Savior as He dwells among us as we read about it in the the book of Revelation. So it exposes our hearts. It exposes the darkness of our heart. But friends, If Paul were to have stopped there, and I were to have stopped there, then there would be great despair, wouldn't there? Just get out there and try harder, doggone it. (laughs) Just get out there and and do better than you did last week. That's not, that's not the gospel. And that's not where Paul leaves us. Paul says, oh, wretched man, oh, wretched man that I am. What is he talking about? Because here, friends, he's asking the question, what is the purpose of the law in my life? How much power does that law have over me? And it would drive us to despair if it were not for the fact that we have to come to this conclusion. The law cannot save you from the law. The law cannot affect what it commands in your life. The law can't justify a sinner and the law can't sanctify a saint. Only Jesus can do that. And that's where Paul is going. Oh, wretched man that I am, what can save me? No, that's not what he asks. Who can save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. The law cannot save you from the law, but Jesus can. The law cannot affect what it commands in your life, but Jesus can. The law cannot save, justify a sinner, can't sanctify a saint. 
but Jesus can. Oh, wretched man that I am, he comes back to this place of rest. He's lifting the pack off of his back, finding refreshment in saying, Ah, oh, but I know, I know that I have been delivered from this life of death by the very one who bore my sin in his body so that I could live in the fullness of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That is the purpose in, of the law in your life today. It reveals, it shines light, it shows us the Savior, drives us back to the Savior, but it is powerless in many ways. It cannot make you what God has already determined that you are by grace through faith in your Savior, Christ Himself. So this is an encouragement. It, it, it's the light shining in my life so that I can actually see myself for who I am and how much I dig deeper into my sin and love that darkness. And it now shines a light on that that I can run right back to my Savior and I can embrace Him, the very one who's been standing there like this. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. All of those whose legs are like rubber and you're out of breath, come to me. I'll take that load. I'll take that load. That's the gospel, friends. That's the gospel then that we now, encouraged by in our own lives, get out there and share. We don't go out there and share. You've got to keep the law. You've got to do this. You've got to stop doing that. We don't need any moralistic preaching. But what we need is gospel-centered lives lived out with a gospel-centered message in the world around us so that they can see that we shine this light when we look at the law into our life and over and over and over I fail it. But again and again and again, Christ forgives me and gives me grace upon grace. That's the gospel. That's the gospel that builds us up and encourages us. And that's the gospel that our world needs to hear today. I moved a whole stack of firewood at a house in McKinney years ago because I stacked it right next to the gate and then I couldn't get my lawnmower through there. So this wood pile had been stacked up there for a while and it had been rained on several times and so I decided to move it to another part in my yard and I began to take stick after stick and move it and then I got down to that last, le last level of, of firewood, firewood that was sunk about that far down into the mud after all of the rain. And what happens? I pull up those logs and all of these bugs, earthworms and asps and all of those things, just to begin to scurry around as the light hit it and they're digging deeper. They're trying to get back into the darkest, darkest place, that place that they once enjoyed when that log was on top of it. But about a week later, I come through the gate with my lawnmower and I notice that most of that dirt is now covered by fresh Bermuda grass, green you don't have that up here. We have it down there. Bermuda grass that the light now fed the soil to bring about life, new life, and that was the green grass. And friends, that's, that's Romans 7 right there. The light of the law shines in our hearts and shows us that we're digging deeper. We're trying to get deeper and deeper into that darkness because we love it so much. But that very law that exposes that is the light of life that now brings about gospel growth that changes us from the inside out, the new life that God promises to give to us. That, friends, that's the gospel that we need. That's the gospel that the Lord gives. 
And that is the gospel that we rest in today. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the goodness of your work of grace within our hearts and our minds. We praise you, Lord, that you sought us and you justified us in applying that grace to us where you pardoned us from our sins. Now you fill us with your spirit to live a sanctified life as we are being sanctified day after day, held secure in the palm of your hand, knowing that we will one day be fully glorified when you come again. Until that day, Lord, remind us over and over and over again of your good grace, your abundant grace that you lavish on us in the one person, the one person who has affected it in us, and that is Jesus the Christ, and we pray it in his name. Amen.